And church, if you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 4, is where we're going to be today. Romans, chapter 4. It's always a joy and a privilege to come and to preach God's Word to you and have an opportunity just to fellowship and us think together about what it means to be a Christian. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be a Christian, or specifically, how does one become a Christian? Perhaps no more important question in the world than that right there. How does one become a Christian? A Christian. So Romans chapter 4, we've been journeying along chapter 1, 2, and 3, and Paul was making this big case, building to this crescendo idea that we're all guilty, that none of us have anything to stand on. And now at the end of chapter 3, all through chapter 4 and 5, he begins to turn to this idea about, well, here's how salvation does come to us. So I want to read today, I'm just going to read the first eight verses. I'll reference some other passages along the way in chapter 4, but we'll start today by reading Verse number 1 through verse number 8. Read along with me this morning, if you will. What then shall we say? That Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works... The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessed man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And he says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Let's pray together. Father God, we do just pause for a moment here this day to still our hearts and our minds. Lord, lest we speak to you in a familiar way. You are holy and you are powerful. You are kind, yet you are just. And Father, we pray this day that you would help us all to to really come to terms with what we bring to the table and what we don't. Father, help us to see clearly for that. And maybe even for some here today, they've never trusted Christ as their Savior. And they think that perhaps they can be good enough. They think perhaps they're supposed to be good enough to earn their salvation. And when it's all said and done, when they're weighed and measured to be able to stand up on what they've done. God, help us today to just destroy that idea in our minds and help us to see clearly. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask that your blessings would be with us now as we once again consider your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's our question for you today to start off with. When you die, will you go to heaven? When you die, will you go to heaven? We have various forms of Christianity. You know, you have Catholic, Protestant, and all those types of things. There's a different kind of form of Christianity I want to pick on for just a minute. It's called folk Christianity. By folk Christianity, what I'm referencing here is the Christianity of the masses. It's popular Christianity. It's it's Christianity as it has been absorbed into a culture, digested by that culture, and re-articulated by that culture with or without any reference to what Christianity actually teaches. 
Folk Christianity is a kind of Christianity that likes to cherry pick, if you will. It wants to leave aside all the hard things that Christianity teaches us. And it wants to pick and choose the very nicest parts of it that it wants for itself and says, yeah, I like that and I like that, so I'll take that. But I'm going to get rid of all these other things that Christianity has taught for 2,000 years. I'm going to cherry pick the parts I want and I'm going to make big out of those types of things. Here's an idea that folk Christianity has adopted. It's this idea of heaven. And according to folk Christianity, everybody goes to heaven. I mean, you think about it. Think about the way our culture talks. Listen to the TV shows, to the movies, to the music. Listen to any lost person in this world when they talk. And everybody, one, wants to go to heaven. And everybody, two, thinks they're going to heaven. But listen, if the Bible's clear about anything, it's clear about this. Not everybody goes to heaven. In fact, Jesus had some rather hard rather stark things to say about how few people go to heaven and how most people don't. He would say things like this, narrow is the way but broad that leads to heaven, but broad is the way and broad is the gate that leads people into destruction. His point there is simply this, that most people actually don't go to heaven. And yet most people think that yes, all people will go to heaven. So my question for you today is very simply this. When you die, will you go to heaven? Now that question should cause us to really want to know how this whole going to heaven, not going to heaven thing works. What's required and what's involved? How does one get to heaven and how does one not get to heaven? What must I do or what must I not do in order to get to heaven? Now here's another idea that most people have that I would call folk Christianity. It's this idea that the way you get to heaven is simply by having your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And here's where we all just give ourselves the benefit of the doubt all the time. We know that deep down inside we're good people. And so surely God's going to see that and He's going to see that at the end of the day my good de deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I'm a better person than I'm a bad person. So therefore, when I'm judged, that's what's going to get me in. Now this is why I'm saying all of this right now. This is why I'm introducing this sermon this way that I am right now. If Paul is doing anything in chapter 4, he's taking a sledgehammer to folk Christianity at this point. He's taking a wrecking ball to this idea that you and I can somehow balance the scales in the right ways with our deeds and therefore be justified before God when we die one day. Listen, here I can say some assurance. You will die you will stand before God and you will be judged. How will you be judged? On what basis will you be judged? And that will be the determining factor as to whether or not you're part of the family of God for all of eternity or not. So here's what I want to do today. I want to show you from chapter 4, Paul very clearly destroys this idea that you and I get to heaven by our own good works. That idea of the scales being balanced, he says, no. That's not how that works. Maybe you've been taught that your whole life. Maybe you've been part of a culture that has sort of assumed that's how it works and you've taken that idea to heart and you've really tried to model that. Well, listen, I want to say to you, there is a greater authority that's about to speak than your culture. 
It is this word, the word of God, and this is what tells us how it actually happens. And what Paul is going to show us here is that it has nothing to do with your good works. And if you stand before God holding up all the good things that you've done, you're in trouble. There's one other thing that will save, and that is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we receive through faith. And that's how we get there. So, let's see what he has to say. First thing I want you to see, verse number 1 and verse number 2, Paul shows us that works give false confidence before God. Works give a false confidence before God. Look what he says here. So what shall we say? Now he's been talking for the first three chapters here about how all of us are sinners and about how all of us ultimately are condemned. Then when he gets to the end of chapter 3, he begins to talk about how the, the prophets have been pointing us to this other idea, that righteousness comes through faith. So he revisits this idea of Abraham, who was you know, the one God chose in Genesis chapter 12. He pulls him out. He says to Abraham, come away from your father's land, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham becomes the father of the Hebrew nation, the father of the Jews, the chosen people, the people that God chose, for what reason? To carry his gospel and to be an example of his grace in their life. So God chooses Abraham. And so one, if you're from that way of thinking that you can get salvation through the law, then surely Abraham's your guy. So Paul starts off in verse 1 of chapter 4. What shall we say then? That Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? What does that mean? What does he mean when he says Abraham was found according to the flesh? I mean, I guess you could find me according to the flesh. Here I am. Here's my body. That's not what he means. When he talks about being found, he's talking about being justified. What is justification? Justification is a positional statement. It has to do with your status, so to speak, before God. You are either condemned or you are justified, declared and made righteous. So when it talks about how he was found, he's talking about him being justified. How, are we going to say, in other words, this is what Paul's getting at. Are we going to say that Abraham was found or declared righteous according to the flesh, meaning that he would have been declared righteous or justified according to the flesh, meaning by his own good works through the keeping of the law? Is that what we're going to say, Paul says? He's asking this question because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, and yet it is exactly what the Jews thought. The Jews thought that they were going to be righteous by keeping the law. Remember in Philippians chapter 1, 2, and 3, where the Apostle Paul talks about his spiritual resume? resume that all these people think that they're going to be righteous by you know, their, their, their keeping of the law and their adherence to the law. And Paul goes on to say... I have more to brag on in those things than any of you do. And yet, listen to what he says, I count all of that stuff, that keeping of the law, that righteousness which comes to the, through the flesh by him being a good person, he says, I count it as rubbish. Now in the King James, it says dung. That's right. All of the good deeds that I do or that you do count as fecal matter before God. That's what Paul says. Now, mocking this idea that you and I could be found according to the flesh or declared righteous by the works of the law, he says, are we going to say that about Abraham? Listen to this, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by, the, by works, then he would have something to boast about 
And notice how it ends the verse. But not before God. <laughs> As if to say, they think that this is going to give them something to stand on and be proud of and to hold up before God and say, see, you're supposed to let me in here and therefore have a false confidence. But Paul makes it clear here in verse number 2 that that is not how it works with God. Now we saw this. I'm going to circle back on several passages in Romans chapter 3 that Bo taught on last week. And the book of Galatians here is also highly important here. But listen to what, what Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse number 10 through 27. Not reading the whole verses there. Just a clump of them. I've got some ellipses in here, so I'm abbreviating. Right. Listen to what he says again. As it is written, there is... Hear me. He's talking about you and he's talking about me. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. None who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tune. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now here's, here's what Paul's wanting you to see. This idea that you and I, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And we say, look, I know I've done some bad things. And I, you know, it, it, sometimes I do something I shouldn't do or say something I shouldn't say. But man, I'm a good guy. Or I'm a good girl, right? Not according to Romans 3. Not according to Romans 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. None of us have anything to stand before God and boast in. And the conclusion that he draws in Romans chapter 3 is this. Where then is boasting? In other words, are, is there any ground for any one of us to stand before God and say, well, look what I did. Look how great I did it. it where is boasting? And the conclusion is, it's excluded. By what law? By works? No, but by the law of faith. In other words, in the economy of God, the way this works, our works are not what establish our righteousness. So number one today, our works give us a false confidence before God. But here's the bigger one I want you to see. Number two, verse number four, second point today. Please hear this one. If there's a verse in this chapter you should memorize, you should memorize verse number four. Second thing I want you to see is that works not just give us a false confidence before God. Listen to this. Our works actually count against us, not for us. Let me say that again. It's totally backwards from what we've all thought. Our good works actually count against us, not for us. Isn't that a 180 from what the world thinks? Isn't that a 180 from the way we typically think about all this? We typically think about all this this way. We, again, I've already said it to you, but here's the, here's the metaphor in our mind. We tend to think that there's this set of cosmic scales that God's got. And that when we die one day, He takes all the different things that we've done and He dumps them out onto a table. And if it was a good thing, He puts it over here. And if it's a, if it's a bad thing, He puts it over there. And then He puts all the good things on one side of the scales and all the bad things on the other side of the scales. And as long as the good things here outweigh the bad things, we will be declared righteous, we will be accepted in. So if that's true, here's what you would essentially be doing. You would be coming before God in His presence and you would be placing your confidence 
and your hope and your trust not in anything he has done for you. And therein lies the offense, by the way. I'll come back to that. But you would rather be putting all of your confidence and your hope in what you have done and thereby suggesting to God that what you can do is better than what he can do. That your righteousness is better than his righteousness. And you'd put your, all your hope in those things right there. And you say, see, my good things outweigh my bad things. And therefore your hope and your confidence and your trust is in your good things that you have done. What Paul will tell you now is that if you do that, if you put your hope and your faith in that, it will not count for you. It will actually count against you. Verse number four, listen to this. Now to him who works, what he means by that is this. To the one who is trying to earn salvation via good works. To the one who's placing faith and trust in their good works. Now to him who works, listen to this, the wages, you know what a wage is? It's a paycheck. You did this task, here's what you get back as your wage. In other words, it's what you earn. Now to him who works, the wages, what you will earn, is not counted as grace, but as debt. Memorize that verse, brothers and sisters. Talk about a verse of Scripture that needs to be on your lips when you're sharing the gospel with people. It's Romans chapter 4, verse number 4. Now to him who works, it is not counted as grace but as debt, meaning that if you trust in your good works, when you stand before God, he's going to take all those good works and he's not going to place them on the side of benefit for you. He will count it as a condemnation against you. Now, let's just try to think that through for a minute. Because that... Not only does that not, is, is it antithetical to what the world's been teaching us the whole time, there seems to be a little bit of an unfairness and a harshness in that, right? I mean, God, why, why would you take my good works and count them against me? Think about that for a moment. It doesn't seem to make sense on the surface of it. But you reflect on it for just a second and circle back on something I've already mentioned. Let me underscore now and unpack it. And I think it makes infinite sense. You know, yeah, you've done some good things, and you've done your bad things. And in your mind, it might calculate that way, but go back to what I said a minute ago. Listen, by you putting your hope and your confidence and your trust in your own good works, here's what you are doing. You are essentially saying to God, yeah, I know that you've done this and that for me. I know that you sent your son, your precious son, your innocent son, the divine son, the son of God into this world to die on the cross for me. I know you did all those things, but what I can do is better. And I'm telling you, you just spit in the face of God. You just backslapped and treated as nothing, treated as minimal, treated as insufficient and insignificant. The very death of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a profound offense. What an arrogant, prideful statement that will be. No wonder, therefore... In the book of Galatians chapter 2, verse number 21, we know all about verse number 20. We, we quote that one. It's a good one to quote too, by the way. You should. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yes, a great verse. Read the next one. Here's what it says. Paul says, I, listen, listen to this. I do not set aside the grace of God. 
What does that mean? It means this. To God's given you grace through Jesus Christ. He sent his son Jesus into this world and he died on the cross for our sins. Wow, what a statement from heaven to me and to you. What an offering from heaven to me and to you. What a gift from heaven to me and to you. And we take it and just set it aside as if it is nothing. Paul says this. I do not set aside the grace of God. Listen, for if righteousness can come through the law, then Christ died in vain. Meaning this, if you and I could indeed get to heaven by our own good works, then the death of Jesus Christ was completely unnecessary. The death of Jesus Christ was completely pointless, valueless, meaningless, purposeless. If you and I really could get there that way, hear me, why then in the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus the night before he's going to be crucified crying out to God with sweat drops of blood from his brow so stressed? Why then there in that moment is he crying out to the Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What does that mean? What is this it? If it is possible, what is the it there in that moment? It's this. If it's possible for them to get to you some other way than me going to that cross, if that's possible some other way, let this cup pass from me. Meaning, God, if there's another way, please don't make me do this. If, there's an, if you could get there through your own effort, your own good deeds, why is he crying that out? And here's a better question. If there's another way. Why didn't heaven stop the show? Why didn't heaven intervene and stop the guards from taking him and stop the trials and stop the beatings and stop the scourgings and stop the, the cat of nine tails and the crown of thorns and the cross and the spear in his side? Why was heaven silent in response? Brothers and sisters, hear me. It's because there is no other way. Therefore, Paul says, I don't set aside the grace of God and treat it as nothing. For if righteousness can come through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So, you see, you got a choice. You got a choice in what you can count on. You got a choice in what you can depend on. You can take all the things that you have done, which, oh, by the way, Isaiah 64, 6 says this. For we are all like an unclean thing. That's a, the word unclean thing there is a word in the Hebrew that's often used to describe a garment stained by a woman in her menstrual cycle. That's pretty graphic. My righteousnesses are like, are like dung, Paul tells us in the book of Philippians. Isaiah tells us that we're all like an unclean thing. And listen to this. He goes on to say that all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. Wow, that is to say there is nothing, nothing you can do. You could never, ever be good enough. You could never work enough. You could never accomplish this yourself. That's the point that Paul wants us to make. So, number one, works just give you a false confidence before God. Number two, works actually count against you, not for you, if you're counting on those things. All right, so this is what I want you to take away from it so far. This is how it doesn't work. Right? Salvation doesn't work this way. Against the backdrop of pretty much all of folk Christianity, which is our culture, and against the backdrop of literally every other religion of the world that would say to you, make sure you get your ducks in a row and do the right things so that it will work out well for you in the afterlife. Against the backdrop of everything else, hear me. 
Christianity, not folk Christianity, Christianity says it is not by your works. Stop counting on those. Stop depending on those. Stop trusting in those things. You need to understand, this is what Jesus means, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're going to be comforted. They'll see God, he says. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's someone who, spiritually speaking, recognizes their bankruptcy. I come before God as a beggar. I come before God as one with nothing. I come before God destitute. Blessed are you if that's your posture. You don't get there through your good works. Third thing I want you to see from verse number 3 and then verse number 5 through 8. Grace and righteousness come through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace from God, which is what saves us. Righteousness, making us righteous and working that righteousness out in us. How does that happen? Not through your good works. Grace and righteousness come through faith in Jesus Christ. Meaning there's really only one thing you can do. And even this thing is not even, not even really a positive act. It's, it's a statement. It's a declaration of bankruptcy and falling onto Jesus Christ. In the same way that when someone passes out and collapses into another person's arms, I would submit to you that a faith act called for here is kind of like that. It's the end of myself when I cannot do anything itself. It's the end of myself when all energy and strength is gone and I can do absolutely nothing other than collapse into the arms of Christ who can hold me up. It's a declaration of my faith and my trust in Him. Verse number three, here's what Paul says. For what does the Scripture say? Now I know that people have been thinking that Abraham was declared righteous because of his works, but watch what he says in verse three. No, what does the Scripture say, he says? That Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Wow, we've seen that language before in several places. Even all the way back in chapter 3, we began seeing this idea that we trust in Christ or we believe in Christ or we have faith in Christ and it's through that faith that regeneration, salvation comes. Now, I do want to just note and pause here for a minute. There is a debate amongst theologians about how this actually works. In the debate, we refer to this debate as the ordus salutis. Latin for order of salvation. How is it actually conceptually speaking? What are the steps in the process through which it happens? And there's roughly two big schools of thought here. The order would be something like this according to the first view. Faith first and that leads to generation. So another regeneration. So in other words, you place faith in Christ and he regenerates you. And that's the order. Faith then regeneration. Here's what's going for that view. There are a number of places throughout even this neighborhood of Scripture where the language that is used is exactly that. Notice this verse in verse 3 as an example of this. But go back in through chapter 3 and you'll see this kind of language again. Verse number 3, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The order there seems to be something like faith that led to regeneration. And so because of verses like that, there's a lot of strength to that view. But there is another view, and it goes the other direction. It says, no, 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 the order is completely opposite of that. It's regeneration first, and then we have faith. In other words, God regenerates, restores, and renews, and then I'm able to have faith, and such that faith is a gift like that. Now, why that view? Again, the first view has the strength of verses like this in its corner. 
But this second view has a little bit of a logical argument. There's some passages of Scripture that they use as well. But for the most part, there's a logical concern here. And the concern is this. If, as the Scriptures, even in the book of Romans, describe us correctly, that we, prior to coming to faith in Christ, are dead in our sins, spiritually speaking, then it would be impossible for me to have faith. It would be impossible for me to trust Christ if, in fact, I'm dead. And so the only way for me to ever do those things like have faith is for him first to bring me back to life. So regeneration first, and then faith proceeds from that. So theologians are going to debate here. Well, let me just say this. I suspect that you and I are probably never, ever, ever going to crack the nut here and get down to being in a position such that we could properly see everything through the right lenses and fully understand it. Remember always, theology is hard. Remember always that theology is hard and we are finite creatures with little squirrel brains trying to understand and comprehend the infinite. So we may never crack that nut and the theologian will prob- theolo- theological debates will probably likely always go forward. So might I simply suggest that we live with the tension and insist, number one, that it is only by the grace of God that we are saved and that, number two, we are indeed called to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that seems to be what Paul is doing here. Is that Listen, what you've got to understand about Abraham is that it's not his works that God was pleased with. It was his faith. And therefore, Abraham is held up as the father of all the nations. Abraham is held up as the one through whom God's going to bless the nations, not because he kept the law, but because he himself exercised faith. And oh, by the way, now for the rest of chapter 4, I'll let you read it this afternoon. Please do. For the rest of chapter 4, verse number 9, all the way down through 24 or 25, what Paul's going to do here in Romans chapter 4 is give us example after example after example of demonstrations of Abraham's faith. He illustrates the point, in other words. And I'll let you just tune in and see those things. Romans chapter 3, verse number 23 through 26, again referencing back to the chapter that Bo was in last week. Listen again to what it says. I believe in redundancy. I think you need to hear it again. So hear it. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How then are we saved? It is not through my works. It is through the grace of Jesus Christ and through the grace of Jesus Christ alone, whom God sent forth as a, listen to this word, a propitiation of blood, by His blood. What does that mean? A propitiation means a covering of sin, a cleansing covering. Imagine that I'm covered up in filth and stain and, and, and blemish. And a propitiation would be a covering that comes over me. But it's not just a veneer. It's not just a, a covering that hides my sinfulness. It is a covering that all, it does hide my sinfulness, but it is a covering that also cleanses. He is the propitiation by his blood through faith, and this is the, listen to this, to demonstrate his righteousness because in forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It is all through faith is what Paul is telling us. Fourth and final thing I want you to see. And I'm real proud of myself for just a moment because I'm actually on time. This never happens. <laughs> Fourth and finally, grace, as we turn from looking at works to grace, the first thing we saw about grace is that it is through grace 
that righteousness and uh, that righteousness comes to us. We get that through faith. Fourth and final thing, grace and righteousness are for all people who believe. For the Jew and for the Gentile, for the man and for the woman, for the white and for the black, for the Asian and the Hispanic, for the smart and for the not so smart, for the accomplished and for the underaccomplished. Grace and righteousness are for all people who believe. Look at chapter 4, verse number 16 through 18. Listen to what he says here. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be a sure, be sure to all seed, not only to those who are of the law, but for those who are of, faith, of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, and in, his, in, his, in the presence of him who believed, listen to this, that God gives life to the dead and calls those things that do not exist as though, as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he could become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. This is a reference back to Genesis chapter 12. And to understand what Paul is saying here, you got to understand Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and says, Through you, Abraham, not just one nation, the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nation, through you, Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. Now, how's that going to happen when Abraham has a lifespan similar to ours? He lives a season of time. He dies. He is no more. He can't continue to himself be the one around to bless all the nations. So what is this a reference to? It is a reference to a descendant coming from Abraham, who we are also told later will likewise come through the bloodline of David. And in Matthew chapter 1, it's a part of Scripture that we'll be very much inclined to read over because it feels somewhat boring when we read it. It's just a list of genealogies. But in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew lays forward the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what does he show? That Jesus Christ comes through the bloodline of Abraham and he comes through the bloodline of David. And therefore he qualifies to be the Messiah. This statement that Paul is now making is twofold things I want you to see from it. Number one, Abraham is the father and it is through Jesus Christ that all the nations shall be blessed. Which is to say, every tribe and every tongue. So, Here's our takeaway from that. We, as people of the book and as people of Christ, we are a people for getting the gospel to all people. Not one kind of people, the kind of people we're comfortable with or used to, but to all people. And second, what that will mean for us is that as they come and they, that we gather together as one body, we strive as followers of Jesus Christ to love Him more supremely than anything else and maintain a fellowship amongst the diversities of the nations all in one place. Isn't it amazing? In the church of Jesus Christ, it is possible to do what could never be done in any other context throughout this world. Gather a people very different, and all with one love, love Jesus supremely, and honor Him. So, the question I ask you today is, when you die, will you go to heaven? Here, let me end this sermon this way, by bringing it home specifically for you. I know we all, I, I, my assumption is here, in fact, let me just ask, how many, raise your hand, how many of you want to go to heaven? Oh, see, I was right. Well, there was one guy right there, he wasn't paying attention though, so that's okay. I'm, I'm sure he doesn't want to not go to heaven. So we all want to go to heaven, right? 
We all want to go to heaven, and yet we all probably assume that we are. And yet what I'm calling you to do right now is to check that assumption against what the Scriptures have actually said. The Scriptures, the highest authority of all, have spoken to us and make it crystal clear. It is not by our good works. And so I check and I challenge you. Is that what you're confident in? Is that what you place your trust in? Is that what you're depending on to hold you up in that day? And I'm saying to you, if you are, you are on the wrong path. Turn from that path and turn to Jesus Christ, the one through whom grace and righteousness comes. And may we follow him in everything we are. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace to us. And we ask, God, that you'd help us as a people to understand rightly how salvation works and to distribute it to all people in all places. Father, help us in this. We love you, we praise you, and we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.